Maple Grove, welcome to chapter 5, the story, new commands and new covenant, a, a conversation that I'm calling rules of engagement. And, and listen, if you are new to Maple Grove or even if you have been here for decades, you could not have picked a better time to be here. Uh, because we are spending the bulk of the year 2013 talking about the greatest story of all time, God's story, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And we're using this book right here called The Story as Our Guide. And basically, the story, it's the Bible in chronological order. There's 31 chapters in here, and basically you're going to find about... 80% of the Bible within these 500 pages. And man, I got to tell you that even though we're only a few weeks into the study, I could not be more pumped up and excited about what God is doing in this place and among his people. I mean, talk about some serious pumpification, all right? And and that's a word I invented five weeks ago. And pumpification is the act of being so stoked, so fired up and excited that you want to jump up on your couch and shout just as if you won the lottery or the Super Bowl. I, I mean, think about it. Every week, hundreds of people are reading a chapter of this book to prepare for this week's conversation. Uh, this past week we read chapter 5. Next week we'll read chapter 6. All right? That's kind of like our homework. And, and you know what's coming? It's time to pass in our papers, right? Okay, who read chapter 5 in preparation for this week? Put your hands up. All right. How awesome is that? And think about this. You know, families are reading this book together. Uh, people are discussing the story in their life groups. The students are talking about it. Children's ministry is talking about it. I understand both young and old and everyone in between is being captivated by the most compelling story of all time. The story of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, sovereign, reigning, and ruling king of the universe. Uh, the story uh, of a God who has been speaking and acting in human history since the dawn of creation. Uh, the, the story of a loving God. The story of, of a father and a son who will do whatever it takes in order to bring people home to himself, regardless of their sins, their failures, their shortcomings, and their mistakes. Wow, what a story. There ain't none better anywhere. And and, and just this past Thursday, I was hanging out with some guys from the Grove at 6 a.m., and every guy, every single one was talking about how the story is affecting their life already. And guys, we got 26 weeks left after today. I mean, some serious God stuff is happening, some stuff we can see, and some stuff is fixing to explode to the surface very soon. And as the great theologians, Bachman Turner Overdrive, (laughs) proclaimed in 1974 in their album, Not Fragile, Okay. <laughs> 74, who feels old, who is old, right? Wow. Yeah, do the math. That's like a really, really long time ago. Like, was that like 39 years? Whoa. Okay. In the beginning. <laughs> I really wasn't there. And you, you weren't either. In the beginning, in chapter one of the story, God created everything. Galaxies, stars, planets, moons, mountains, oceans, rivers, streams, birds, fish, 
thundering volcanoes, towering redwoods, all as a backdrop for his greatest desire, for his greatest passion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Understand, the reason behind everything, the reason behind all of creation is God's desire to have a relationship and to do life with his people. It's for God to do life with me and for God to do life with you. It all started in a garden paradise, a perfect environment where God could walk and talk and enjoy an intimate relationship with the people he created. He he made everything available to them except one thing. And they chose that one thing that was forbidden, forever banishing themselves from the garden and banishing us from God's presence. So God took another approach to doing life with his people. He created a nation through whom he would reveal himself. And, And after preserving this people through a famine and rescuing them from a foreign land, God was ready to lead these people through Moses into the promised land. A land, if you will, that was garden-like. A land that was flowing with milk and with honey. A land where God would build this nation out of which he would reveal his glory, his presence, his power, and his plan to bring people back to himself. Understand, Chapter 5 of the story is a huge transition point in Scripture. From this point on, God is not going to just interact with certain people or individuals or just talk to certain men. Instead, God will begin to share life with all of his people for the first time since way back in the garden. However, for that plan to move forward, certain things needed to be in place. Certain things need to be set in motion. Understand, for God to take his relationship with his people to the next level, uh, for God to engage them in a new and fuller way, he tells Moses in chapter 5 of the story, hey Moses, there's three things that need to be in place for us to do this, for us to move forward, for my presence to be with you in a new and fuller way, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. And we got to pray. We seriously got to pray. And we're going to pray palms open. And we do that at Maple Grove. It's a symbolic gesture because, you know, God's word is true and it's powerful. It can change our lives. It can, it can take root and grow and produce fruit. And open palms are saying, God, you know, you're going to speak. You're not a dead, silent God. You're a live, active God. And our palms are saying, God, you're going to speak. And whatever you bring to me, God, It may be uncomfortable, it may stretch me, it may challenge me, but I know it's from you, so I know it's for my best, and I'm going to receive it. And so, let's pray with palms open if you're ready to hear from God. And and Father, we love you. We're in all of you. Even right now, though we cannot see or hear them, the angels since, you know, the dawn of creation have been crying out how holy and awesome and mighty you are. There's none like you. You've always been, you always will be. You love us with an unfailing, undying, unbounded, uncompromising love. And God, I I pray this morning that we hear your voice. I pray that first of all, I hear your voice. Even as I speak, I want to hear you talk to me, Dad. I I want to hear what you want to tell me. And Father, I pray that we come with open hearts and minds, believing that you can do something. And God, I ask for your help. Help me to say what you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it. 
And God, we come to you like hungry, starving people, like a deer panting for streams of water, knowing that in you and you only and your word and in your word only will we find true and lasting satisfaction. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the first thing that God tells Moses needs to be in place for, for him to engage his people in a new and fuller way is that there, that there needs to be a standard to follow. As chapter 5 opens up, God's people, all two to three million of them, are camped at the base of Mount Sinai. And chapter 5 begins with the following words. On the first day of the third month, after Israelites left Egypt on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Exodus 19, 1 and 2. The third month. You know, I think that the number three is one of God's favorite numbers. I'm just saying, all right? And in Exodus 19, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to receive from God the standard that he wants his people to follow. And before we take a look at that mountaintop encounter, I want to say two things about these standards that God has given Moses and us. Number one, number one is that Okay, uh, number one is that these rules, these standards, should not be seen as an entrance exam, but as a list of family traits. Okay? Let that sink in for a minute. It's not an entrance exam. It's a list of family traits. Number two, uh, uh, these rules are not a list of things that God's people needed to do in order to be in a relationship with him. Instead, their list of behaviors as people were to live out because they were already in a relationship with him. Get it? Good. I mean, it's as if God is saying, okay, here is what it means to be a part of my family. But understand, God initiated the relationship with his people long before he told them what the rules were. You see, it was only after God had established the relationship, had sealed the relationship, had proven the security of the relationship that he gives his people the rules to live by. You see, God knew something that every parent eventually discovers, that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. God knew that. And that's why he only gave them the rules after he had established the relationship. So in effect, he's saying, hey, if you're going to be a part of this family, here are some of the house rules. And listen, after living in a pagan godless culture for 400 plus years, these people had no idea whatsoever what was right or what was wrong. They really needed this instruction because they've been raised, they've been brought up in a culture completely different than God's. Over the years, Laura and I have had several young people who, for various reasons, were forced to leave their homes and they came to live with us. And many come, came from some pretty dysfunctional homes, even more dysfunctional than ours. And, and, uh, and one of the things we did right out of the gates is we say, hey, you know, you're part of our family now. You know, and here are some of the basic rules. Here are some of the Malone family rules, and we kind of lay them out. And I remember that this one girl, I, I, I won't say her name in case she's listening. Hope, how you doing? Hope things are going well. Um, but she was 19 years old, and, and she came back late from Stone Mountain in Georgia. And we're in the back deck. She comes in. I go, what's the deal? 
I'm late, and I, I started to get on to her. She goes, started getting disrespectful. And I go, time out, time out. I'm not your dad. <laughs> we don't do this in this house. You will not disrespect me yeah, or Miss Laurie in any way. That's not how we roll. If you keep it up, you're going to your room. She's 19 years old. You're going to your room. And, and uh, here's what it means to be a part of this family. And so God is building this thing from scratch. These are very immature people. They have no idea what loving behavior is or what loving behavior isn't. It's like, we can't just tell a toddler, hey, I want you to love your sister. Cool. We got to say, don't hit your sister, right? Don't throw your sister down the stairs. Don't steal her cookies, you know. Don't take her toys. Share your stuff because they have no clue what it means to love somebody. These people didn't either. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. Actually, it goes up and down three times in chapter 19. And on trip number one, here's what God says to him. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my commandments, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Uh, although, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Basically, God is saying, you see my power. You've experienced my protection. And if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, I will make three promises to you. Number one, out of all the nations in this earth, you will be my special possession. He says, number two, you will be a kingdom of priests. And number three, you will be a holy nation. Sounds a little like Peter said in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. And so Moses comes down from the mountain. He gathers up the leaders of Israel. He, He tells them what God had said. And the leaders respond in Exodus 19, 8, we will do everything. The Lord has said, Moses puts on his hiking boots back on, trucks back up the mountain. He says, God, guess what, God? They're in. God says, awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Now you go tell the people to get ready. Tell them to to wash their clothes. Tell them to consecrate themselves. Tell them to prepare themselves because on the third day, I am coming down on top of Mount, Mount Sinai in the front in the sight of all the people. And then we read in Exodus 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. God speaks to Moses from the thundering mountain, and then Moses comes down, and he tells the people what God has just said. Exodus 20, verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And you got to understand, I, I think the first six words there, I think the first six words took them by surprise. Wait, hold on. Moses, did we hear you right? Don't you mean 
the Lord, the God? Yeah. Today, 3,000 years, the other side of thundering Mount Sinai, we have a lot more information about God. But they didn't know a whole lot about God. All they knew, hey, God has delivered us from slavery, and God is, intends to take us to the promised land. So the seemingly insignificant pronoun was huge to them, and it told them that something new and awesome and profoundly different was taking place. The Lord, your God, implied a relationship. But there's relationship. they hadn't done anything to deserve or to establish this relationship. And, and as, run, as slaves on the run, they really didn't have anything to offer God. Um, they didn't even know how to please him. Nevertheless, the phrase, your God, affirmed the fact that they already had a relationship with God. In other words, God was saying, hey, guys, you're in. You're in. You're already my people. You already belong to me. You're already in this family. And do you notice that God kind of took the Israelites down memory lane? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And I bet instantly many images of God's might and God's power flashed through their eyes. The ten plagues, the cloud, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea, the crushing of their enemies. Understand, God's message to the Israelites could not have been clearer. Guys, you're not here to get in with me. You're already in. Guys, we're not here to establish a relationship. I took care of that two months ago when I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. And then Moses gives the people the standards for them to follow, what we have come to know as the Ten Commandments. And God is saying, because I am your God, because I delivered you from Egypt, because you are now a part of my family, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the first four commandments center on our relationship with God. Uh, the, the last six center on our relationship with each other. And I'm going to ask the students, I know you were, thought you were coming later. The students came up with, with, with Maple Grove student movement version of the Ten Commandments. So come on up. Come on up, ladies. And let, let's see. This is how they do things in student movement, all right? All right. Ain't it good to be surprised? Coming up early, right? You're, and I think we have here, here, stand up here, everybody can see you. And we have one, spoke, you're the spokesman, all right? Here's how they roll in student movement. Number one, God is the only God, yo. <laughs> Number two, God is greater than everything. Hashtag for real. <laughs> Three, don't take the Lord's name in vain, which is just don't say, oh my gosh. Four, rest your bod once a week. Hashtag Z, 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 Z. Hashtag sleepy time. <laughs> Honor your ma and pa. Respect. Hide your kids, hide your wife. No killing, bro. <laughs> Number seven, if daddy and mommy are married, daddy can't have no girlfriend. What up? And the credits to that go to Sylvia. <laughs> Eight, swiper, no swiping. Hashtag Dora. 
Don't say LaQuisha pulled out your weave if she didn't. <laughs> don't be wanting no else. Don't be wanting no one else's fried chicken. Hashtag mmm good. <laughs> Amen. All right. Good job. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's some good stuff right there. And Jesus, uh, about 1,500 years after Thunder Mount Sinai, he kind of summarized the Ten Commandments and all the Old Testament for that matter with, with two basic statements. Understand, as free followers of God, we have two basic requirements in this family. Love the Lord your God. What's that next word? What, what Lord's underlined there? That was weak, y'all. Okay. And what's that word? All. all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And number two, we're to what? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And after giving them the Ten Commandments, Moses in Exodus 21 through 23, he gives some of the specifics. He says, hey, here's, some of how, here's, here's how some of that stuff is played out. And listen, the Ten Commandments... Uh, became a tight, succinct description of some of the core values that would guide the decisions of people who are part of God's family. The Ten Commandments became a tight, succinct description of some of the core values that would guide the decisions of people who are part of God's family. And then we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, Moses gathers not just uh, the leaders, but all the people and all the people listened to Moses. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And, and a little later, um, the Lord says to Moses, Moses, I, I want you to put your hiking boots back on, come up to the mountain, and I'm going to write that stuff down for you in stone. And, and Moses says, okay, I'm coming. And he says, I'm taking Joshua with me. And Aaron, you got it, bro. All right, you're in charge. I'm not going to be here. You got it. Aaron goes, yeah, I got it. I'm good. I'm good. I got it. And, and I mean, picture the scene. Moses is in the presence of God on top of the mountain, and God is writing out the Ten Commandments. What a moment that must have been for Moses. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, guess what's taking place? You won't believe it. Uh, the people become impatient as, as one week turned into two, two turned into three, three into four, and they start asking, okay, uh, where's Moses? Is he still alive? Is he coming back? In Exodus 32, it, it tells us the Israelites that they come to Aaron. They say, Aaron, will you make for us an image? I mean, we saw all kinds of awesome images in Egypt, man. You know, uh, could you make us an image so that we can worship it? And Aaron, the guy left in charge, Aaron, the guy who had a ringside seat to all the powerful things God did to Egypt, he does it. He collects gold from two million people, and he makes a golden cow out of it. Forty days later, Moses comes down the mountain. He hears all kinds of, here's a ruckus going on. Joshua thinks, gets ready to pull out his sword. The camp must be under war. It sounds crazy. And Moses gets down, and it's not, it's not, it's not war. God's people, who, who had just said everything the Lord said we will do, they were dancing around a, and partying around a golden calf. Moses, to say he's ticked is an understatement. He takes and he smashes the tablets on the ground. And then he takes that golden idol, and he burns it 
and he grinds it up and, and he dumps uh, that powder, grinds it to powder and he dumps that powder throughout the water supply and he gets a cup and, he, and all two million people are for, you drink some of this. You, you drink, you taste how bitter it is to, to turn against God and every person has a drink from that water. It, it's kind of the ancient version of your mom washing your mouth out with soap. So, so you, you, don't, you don't repeat that terrible behavior. And then Moses looks at the Israelites. He said, hey, who's on God's side? And the Levites come running up and say, we're on God's side. But there's still other people as they run up that are still continuing to, to worship an idol and, and, and to, to be involved in this wild party. And then we read this in Scripture. And Moses said to them, to the Levites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. And I know to us that sounds harsh, and it is, but church, followers of Jesus Christ, Steve, we need to get this. We need to understand this. The reason it seems so harsh to us because we don't fully understand the seriousness of sin. Sin is breaking faith with God. Sin is committing spiritual adultery against God. Throughout the Old Testament, Scripture talks about, about how, how God is in a marriage relationship with his people, that God has made a bunch of promises, and he's kept every single one. And we made promises back to God, but we keep on breaking those promises. So Moses, he goes back up to get him a new copy of the Ten Commandments. And, and, and I guess if, if, I, if I was trying to, to recap what has happened so far in the story, it would kind of go like this video right here. Check this out. The desert sand whirls with the wind, carried by cries of distant Egyptian echoes, the Red Sea long closed. A voice, rich and flowing like heaven's fountain, calls from the smoke-covered mountain. You have seen what I have done, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Israel's eyes have cried a wealth of tears through countless lost years, but now she is free. Free from Pharaoh's orders, free from Egypt's borders, free from the slave work of brick and mortar. For these slaves have seen their creator command his creation, and now this God has chosen them to be his holy nation. If you keep my covenant and follow my annunciations, so this people with one voice raise their shouts to the skies of endless blue, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. This promise offered like a bouquet to God from his chosen few came from all Israel, meaning every single Jew was entering into a new covenant, but none of them could fathom what this promise meant. For they were promising to be steadfast, to abandon their past. And no matter what God asked, no matter the test or request, they had pledged to answer yes. 
Now this was so much more than mere obedience, more than sheer compliance. For this covenant ensured their entire reliance on God alone. For the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the great I Am, seated on heaven's throne, was building a home with insignificant Israel. So God posted some house rules to protect his own children, to set apart his holy brethren. And from this intention to hold the world and the kingdom in tension came the intended commandments of 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. So, one, you shall have no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make any idol for worshiping. Three, you shall not take my name in vain or make it empty. Four, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The tens first four at their very core say with no facade that our God is a jealous God, that there is no golden calf, no idol half as glorious as our Lord. For what more could we strive? Let the ten begin again with five. Honor your father and mother. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not be an adulterer. We are meant to worship God as master and serve him only, but how are we to relate to one another in a way that is holy? Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not falsely with a neighbor deal. And ten, you shall not covet anything another wields. These final three aim to defeat deceit and greed from polluting our souls. For Satan prowls and patrols, looking for ways to circumvent our covenant's holdout on sin, to desecrate and condemn the precepts protected by the ten. So may this people cry out for all that is holy and true. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. For it's the same today for me and for you. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're still called to obey like those wandering Jews. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. For we are the royal priesthood. We are the chosen few. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. So let the ten spoken then begin again for me and you. And say it with me if you choose. Everything the Lord has spoken, we his people will surely do. Amen. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I think they had every reason to do just that. And so do we. I mean, after all, he is the Lord who brought his children out of Egypt and out of slavery. He is the Lord who's delivered us from our sin. He is the Lord who has rescued us out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his light. He is the Lord who gave us a second chance. He is the Lord who loved us enough to send his one and only son to this world. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. And you know what? I think they really meant it at the time. I mean, would you agree with me that those eight words, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do, are much easier to say than they are to live out? And why is that? Well, I think if we're honest, we'd have to admit that part of the reason is because we don't like or want to be told by anyone what to do, not even by God. 
And before we leave this, I need to point out the pattern that we see developing already in just the first five chapters of the Bible. And it's, just, it's a reoccurring theme that we'll see repeated again and again. Mankind will try to do what's right. They will say that they will, they will love God more than anything else. But when push comes to shove, they will cave, they will fold, they will sin. Adam and Eve will eat the forbidden fruit. Noah, the righteous man, will get drunk after the flood. And even Moses, this great leader we see right now, later down in this story, we're going to find that this man struggles with pride, and pride nearly brought him down. It kept him out of the promised land. And here's a point that God is trying to make it. God is laying a foundation that regardless of who we are, regardless of how many we lead, we are all sinful. We all will disappoint him. And that in and of, us, in, and, that in and of ourselves, we will never measure up. And the flesh is impossible. And so God continues to build his case that his people need a Savior. They need a Messiah. And let me ask you a question. Uh, why did God give the law? Uh, well, one of the reasons was to show us that we couldn't keep it. Uh, to underscore the truth that we're the creation. He's the creator. He's holy. We are sinful, and we need a Savior. Uh, understand God didn't give us the law to make us good. No, he gave us the law to expose our sin. Not to make us good, but to expose our sin. And, and why is that such an important lesson to learn? Well, the answer is found in what we studied in, in chapter 5 of the story. Our God is a jealous God. He wants our affection. He wants our attention. He wants our commitment. I, I understand, we, we, were com we were created in his image. So he begins the commandment by demanding, you will have no other gods before me. Now, now you may be thinking, but okay, Steve, I get that. There's no way I would ever worship a golden cow. I mean, I would never do that. But wait a second, that's not commandment number one, that's commandment number two. Graven image. You see, God starts with commandment number one, that you must have, that I must have no other God before me, because if we get that one right, everything else just flows naturally. Question. God says we're to have no other gods before me, right? No other idols, no golden calves in their life. Can you think of some things that people in our world, not us, right, not you or me, right, but what are some things that people in our world make an idol and put before God? Go ahead and shout out some answers. Let's hear them. Money. Job. Sex. Power. Pride. Possessions. Entertainment. Safety. Education. No other gods. Understand, our money, our stuff, and our job cannot be more important than he is. Where we live cannot be more important than he is. Our family cannot become more important than he is. Our hobbies cannot become more important than he, than he is. We need to learn the lesson. I need to learn the lesson of the 3,000 slain Israelites, that, that if we side with God, he expects our loyalty, he expects our commitment. 
and that our response should always be, everything the Lord has said, I will do. And listen, God doesn't just want us to say that. He wants us to mean it. He wants us to make wise, God-honoring decisions. You know, over 400 years after this event of the golden calf, David talks about it in Psalm 106. He's talking about how God delivered his people and how God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. I love that phrase, you know. He just rebuked it and dried up. And then David says this. And look at this. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshiped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God from an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Did you catch what David said? Look at verse 20 again. It says, they exchanged their glorious God from an image of a bull which eats grass. Why would they make such a trade? Why would someone choose a cow over our glorious God? And listen, that's a fair question, isn't it? Why would they do that? Why would they choose a cow over our glorious and all-powerful God? Why? Why would they do that, and why would I do that? And why do we do that? I, I mean, why would we let? Why would we let? Why would I let? Why would you let? Why would we let a relationship, pleasure, possessions, good times, money, stuff, a paycheck, paycheck, a, a friendship, a family member, why would we let those things become more important than the perfect God of the universe who delivered us from darkness, who delivered us from sin, who crushed his own son that we could be with him and who is preparing a home for us in heaven that will absolutely blow our minds forever. I mean, it's a ludicrous trade if we think about it, isn't it? And like, yet, like the Israelites who praise God one day, everything the Lord said we will do and dance around a golden calf the next, we too make foolish trades with regularity. We must have no other God, no other gods before us. And, and listen, God didn't say that, be, and, and our, our God is jealous. But God is not jealous for us because he's mean, because he's a control freak, because he's cruel, because he's sadistic, but because he loves us, because he knows what's best for us, because he knows that he, his son, and his word are the best things to build our life on. See, God knows that, that sexual satisfaction and money and stuff and living for the praise of people and worldly success and fame, God knows that those are not a very firm foundation to build someone's life on. I mean, we could ask those in our world who've tried, right? Who've tried. Who, we could ask those in our world who danced around the golden calf of money. I need more money. I need success. I need fame. I need pleasure. I need this. And it didn't work out so well for them. See, God gave us the Ten Commandments. And, and really, you know, starting off with commandment number one, to show us how much we need him. And to show us that, that that's the best place to build our lives. 
for God to move his plan forward, for, for God to take his relationship with Israel to the next level, for, for God to engage his people in a new way. Some stuff needed to be in place first. And the first thing was there needed to be a standard to follow. There's two more things. I'm going to hit them quick. They're going to show up again and again as we go through the story. But the next thing that needed to be in place, there needed to be a place for God to dwell. In Exodus chapter 25, Moses He's beginning his 40 days on top of Mount Sinai. He just brought back the word. The people said, everything the Lord said, we will do. And then God says, I want you, when you go back down, you're going to take up an offering of the people. Anybody whose heart's prompted to give, I want them to give. And then I want you, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 89, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnaces exactly like the pattern I will show you. You see, God needed a place to dwell so that his people will be reminded constantly of his presence, of his power, of his majesty, of his protection, so that they would know that God, he's always with them, that he would never leave them, that his presence, that God's presence is always with his people. Man, man, I love the conversation that Moses has in Exodus 33 with God. You know, the people have repented, and, and, and God says this to Moses. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I'll give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. God, if you ain't going with us, God, I don't want to be anywhere that you're not, God. Don't send us anywhere that you're not, God. I, I want your presence with me always and forever. And then as the book of Exodus ends, we read in Exodus chapter 40. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. One year to the day from when they left Egypt. In verse 34, and so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You know, for God to take our relationship deeper, uh, there needed to be a standard to follow. Uh, there needed to be a place to dwell. And there needed to be a means to approach. You, you see, the law didn't simply condemn sin. It also included a means to make amends for sin. You see, it, 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 the law included a, a way for sinful and rebellious people like me and like you to approach a holy and righteous God. We read about it in the book of Leviticus. And now, most people consider the book of Leviticus to be one of the most boring books in the Bible. And, you know, from a, a lower story point of view, I get it. It's not really a page turner, all right? But it is one of the most important books in the Bible because it lays out what needs to happen before sinful mankind can approach and be reconciled to God. And God is essentially saying to his children, hey, there's one thing that separates me from you, and it's your sin. And you can't do anything about it. It's going to take the blood of a, of a, a spotless, blameless sheep, lamb, to cover up your sin so you can approach me. Yeah, yeah an innocent animal has to die so that sinful people can approach God. Kind of seems unfair. Yeah, that's exactly the point. It's totally unfair that an innocent creature gets what we deserve, that the Son of God gets what we deserve, but it's the only way because we cannot cover our own sin. And God says, I, I want to be with you so much despite your rebellion. I want to be with you so much that I will provide a way that you can be with me. 
that my presence can be with you all the time. And understand, each prescribed sacrifice was a, was, a, was a lesson, was an object lesson to remind them that sin is costly and to reinforce in their mind the concept of substitution. The idea that for sinful people to approach God, someone righteous and holy is going to have to shed their blood. Yeah, and I know that from a lower story perspective, all the commandments and all the sacrifices seem kind of ritualistic and maybe even barbaric. But understand, they were just a hint. They were just a shadow of the most incredible upper story of all time. And Paul says it so well in Colossians chapter 2. This is my story and yours. Once you were far away from God, helpless, couldn't do anything about it. But now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. A, a standard to follow, a place to dwell, a means to approach him. Wow. Chapter 5. I Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? What a, what a huge chapter. What a huge chapter. Listen, Maple Grove, I stand before you on the authority of God's word to tell you that today, February the 17th, 2013, that God's desire is the same as his desire was 3,500 years ago. In fact, God's desire today is the same as it was at the dawn of creation. God's desire is to do life with you. And to do life with you. And, and, and to do life with you. And with you and with me. Today, the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, is looking every single one of us in the eye, and he's saying, I want to do life with you. I want you in my family. I, I want you to be my children. And, and don't worry, I know you're messed up, but I have made a way. My son has made a way for you to approach me once and for all time. You once were far away from me, but now because of the blood of, of my son, you can come near. You can approach me. And, and, you, and he goes on to say, you know, yeah, there are some family rules, but I want you to know that my presence dwells within you. And the more you reside in my presence, the more you let my spirit has his way in you, the more you'll become the people, the person that you were always created to be, the more that you will reflect my image. We shall have no other gods before our God. Our God is a jealous God, and he's jealous. Sometimes you and I are jealous, and it's not a good thing. It's a sinful thing. God's jealousy is a good thing. God wants you, and he wants all of you because he loves you. He wants all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and all of mine because he loves us, and he's jealous for us because he loves us so very much. We're going to sing a song um, about God's love and about the fact that God is jealous for you. And as we sing this song, I just want to encourage you. There's not a person in here that in the past, or maybe right now, has danced around a golden calf and thinking, you know, this is more important. Nothing's more important than God. No one will love you like God. People let you down, betray you, abandon you. God won't. 
you know, and, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to talk to you. And do you have any idols in your life? Just lay them down now. Grind them up to powder. Burn them. Get rid of them because no one will love you like God. No one can do for you the things that God has done for you. And, and there's a line in the song, you know, and, and if you do that, if you do that today, that's a victory for God. And don't allow the enemy to beat you up after you slay your idol. Because we don't have time to maintain regrets, right? When we think about how much he loves us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing this song. Father God, would you all stand? Father God, we love you so much. And God, we come before you as your people. And, and God, when, when I think that you, the holy, perfect, righteous God, wants to be with me, that you look at me right now, and you look at every heart in the room right now, and you say, Despite your sins, your flaws, and your failures, I want to do life with you. I want my presence to fill you. You can approach me because of what my son has done. And you'll begin to live, we'll begin to live a life that reflects your beauty and the image of who you are. God, thank you for being jealous for us. Thank you for what, wanting what is best for us. Thank you for loving us. And God, I pray you continue to work even as we sing. May we cast down our idols. May we cast down our golden calves. And each of us recommit anew to you. Amen.